Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, find Romans chapter 4. And let me just say, you may look around the room and see a few things different over the next couple weeks. We're going to be getting uh, some renovations done, some new carpets, some new painting, as the kids would say, a glow up. Is that what they say? No, I don't know. But we're going to be doing some improvements that are necessary. So if this is an abstract art you see on the wall, some cool stuff's going to begin to happen over the next couple weeks. So you may see a few things looking a little different as we finish those projects. But looking forward to talking today about the gospel. And you may ask, I mean, don't, shouldn't we all know the gospel? We're here at church. Isn't that the definition of preaching to the choir, right? And yes, we do desire for the gospel to go out of our walls and for the lost to be saved. But did you know the gospel is also for the found? The good news of Jesus is not just for the lost and the non-Christians outside of our walls, but friends, it's for us here who are Christians and who are believers because we are prone to wander and forget and live disconnected from the message of our hope. The gospel is not just how we get saved, but rather it's the central message that we stand on, we grow in. It is the central message that we build our hope on. And that's actually Paul's whole point in the book of Romans. And I don't have time to exegete the whole book of Romans for you this morning. But we found ourselves with a Sunday without a sermon series. And so I wanted to just give us a refresher of the gospel. To be reminded again, wherever you are, whatever you have going on, that God's word is still true, that Jesus has still come and died for your sins and risen again, and the good news of that message, to be reminded again of the goodness and the kindness of God, and to see the gospel as what it really is. That word just means good news. In fact, the gospel is the greatest news in all the universe. So I want us to look at Romans chapter 4, because every time we gather, we gather with struggles. Maybe today you doubt that God has truly forgiven you. Maybe you're struggling to live set free, even though you have been set free. Maybe you're even unclear totally about what it means to be forgiven and what this whole gospel thing means for you. There is truly nothing more needed than a gospel reminder. So let's look. Romans chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 1 to 8. The word of God says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also spoke of the blessing of the one to whom God counted righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of God. Two of the hardest words to say and two of the hardest words to believe 
are the words, you're forgiven. Yet in these words is the power of life transformation. So much of our life we live bogged down because we have not forgiven someone else or we ourselves have not been forgiven. And Paul wants to illustrate, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, an illustration of God's forgiveness. And he gives us the example of a man named Abraham. And we know a couple things about Abraham. We know that Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. That's how the old uh, kids song goes, right? But Abraham would have really been considered the hero of the Old Testament faithful. If kids today still have posters on their wall, kids today might have Captain America or whoever the latest basketball player is. I'll say when I grew up, and kids, you can ask your parents about this, I had a Space Jam poster with this guy named Michael Jordan, right? That was her Shaq. Who was in that movie? Michael Jordan. There it was. Michael Jordan. Kids, you can ask your parents about who that was. But kids in Paul's day would have had posters of Father Abraham on their wall, right? He was sort of the hero of the faith. And Paul's using Abraham as an illustration of what it means to be justified by faith. What it means to be right with God through faith. We studied the life of Abraham a few years ago when we were going through the book of Genesis. And Paul wants us to think back on that, to think about what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. Look with me actually at Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. And look how he sets this up. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? In other words, what gain did Abraham have as a father of the faith? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says a few things here. First, he says that, Abraham, even Father Abraham, could not boast in his own works. Even Father Abraham couldn't boast in his own heritage. Friend, do you think your daddy or granddaddy was something great? All three major world religions claim Abraham as their guy, right? You want to talk about a guy with righteous standing and legacy, and yet here we see he can't even claim that as something to boast in before God. The only thing Abraham could root his faith and his hope in was God's promise. And notice the question that Paul asks to draw his conclusion in verse 3. He says, what does the scripture say? And that should really be our central question we ask when considering questions relating to God and salvation and faith. And his conclusion was this. Abraham was counted righteous, was made right with God through faith apart from any works. And then he gives an incredible illustration in verse 4 and 5. And that's really where I want us to focus this morning. Because Paul wants, or God wants us to remember and he wants to solidify in us what it means that we're justified by faith. And he does this through three truths, or we can think of it as three headlines for us, three pieces of news that we all need to hear, understand, and believe if we're going to understand the gospel. First, we've got to talk about the bad news. And the bad news, friends, is that we are all ungodly. Pastor included, we are all sinners. We are all ungodly. Notice Romans 4, 5. I love this. Look at this. Now to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he says, if you want to be justified, you got to believe God's able to justify the ungodly, which means before you can understand how God can justify the ungodly, you've got to understand that you're in that category. You've got to understand that you are ungodly. Before understanding the good news, you've got to understand the bad news. Any doctor, before giving you the cure, has to diagnose the sickness. And friends, God would want us to diagnose the sickness of our sin before we'll see Jesus as the one who can meet us in the midst of that diagnosis. And this is actually why Paul's message to the book of Romans begins with our understanding of our sin before God. He spends nearly three chapters laying out this case, painstaking links to show us the reality of our sin. And I actually want us to look back at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. And look what he says. This is a good summary of what Paul hopes for us to see here. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This is Paul's basic way of saying, hey, God exists, the world around us shows us God exists, and the world tells us at least a little bit of what God is like that he's righteous and perfect. His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in the world around us. We can know God exists through the world he made, and we can know enough about God to know that we're in trouble. The same way a, a Picasso painting can tell us a lot about Picasso, so the world can tell us a lot about the God who made it. In fact, God is righteous, and he says that he has a righteous wrath toward sin. Why? He says, because ultimately, as humanity, we can look around and see the world that God made and yet deny that he made it. Or look around at the truth and and suppress the truth of his existence in unrighteousness. Ultimately, we can live as if the God above us is really below us, someone we can sort of move to our own imaginations, Or as someone who, though he is above us, we are going to live free from, or at least live under our own lordship rather than his. And this rejection leads to rebellion against God. And he says, therefore, we are all ungodly and we are all without excuse. Because all of us can see God's handiwork in the world and yet live however we want without ever giving second thought to him. He says that all of us, by default, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We push up against his existence that's coming down, and we go, I'm going to live how we want. We reject him, and that means we pursue all sorts of corruption. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 3 shows how sin has impacted every single part of us. And you can go check that out, but here's sort of his his summary of what he has to say. Romans 3, 10, and 11 No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. And it's interesting, he doesn't, my Bible doesn't have a little star next to it that goes down and has a list of names of folks who are exempt. 
from that, right? All of us, by default, from Adam to Abraham on up to the modern day, none of us naturally seek after God. None of us are naturally righteous in and of ourselves. We're sinners and left to our own devices. Friends, we are destined for eternal death and for the judgment of God. And because of our sins, that's why none of us can work our way to God through our own works. We're all sinners before a holy God, and that means we're in trouble. In fact, the Bible would tell us we're sinners both by action and by birth. We're sinners both, both, both by nature and by nurture. Romans 5 tells us that Adam's sin in the garden was actually imputed to us. Look at this, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, the reason we all die is because Adam's sin has corrupted everyone who came after him. Adam represented all humanity in the garden. And we're told that he, that, that we sinned in him when he sinned, and therefore we all stand guilty before God. Think of it this way. Adam was sort of the quarterback for all humanity. And friends, when the quarterback gets a penalty, the whole team can be impacted. And so friends, all of us, by nature and by choice, by nature and by nurture, are sinners before a holy God, and we need to understand that bad news. God is a righteous judge. We have a court date with him, and friends, we are all going to be found guilty if left to ourselves. Many of us think, though, that, well, God's just going to sweep my sin under the rug. We'd love for God to do that with us, but when a judge does that in this world, we would call him corrupt. God does not just sweep sin under the rug. Many of us think, well, God's going to forgive me because of who my family is. But if he didn't do it for Abraham, who do we think we are? Others of us think, well, I'm just simply not that bad, pastor. And I would say, look at what the scripture says. We're all that bad left to ourselves. Notice the ungodly in the illustration of Romans 4 is Abraham. And if Abraham doesn't measure up, I know I'm in trouble. Remember, Genesis chapter 12 tells us that just at the call of God, Abraham picked up and moved, but he didn't even know where God was calling him to go. Just picked up, put everything on the back of the camel, and took off. Friends, he performed the first circumcision according to the command of God, and he was an adult when God asked him to do it. I don't know if I'm that faithful, guys. I'm sorry. He even went and offered his son on an altar as an act of faith and obedience. That's Genesis chapter 22. Friends, Abraham had his issues. You can go read about. But friends, if obedience could save, Abraham met every qualification. But God does not give grace like a wage. Romans 4, 4 tells us how God doesn't work. And friends, God doesn't work like your boss. Or maybe even like your parents, where just just do the right thing and you will receive a wage. God doesn't do that with salvation and with grace. Look at Romans 4.4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, 
but as his due. In other words, he says, if we seek to be justified by what we do, if we seek to think, well, I'm good with God because I showed up and filled the seat on Sunday, or, well, I was baptized, or I just repeated some words after a guy sometime, or, well, I'm, I'm going to give some money away. If we think it works transactionally that way, like an employee getting paid for his work, then we are in trouble, because if grace and salvation are rewards for good behavior, then, friends, we're all destined for detention, we're all in trouble. We, if we get what we deserve, we're hopeless. None of us will be saved by our heritage or by our works or by any goodness in us. That is the bad news, but the bad news is true nonetheless. We need salvation to come from outside of ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. And friends, the good news is that the sermon isn't over. The good news is that the bad news isn't the end of the story. In fact, the bad news prepares the way for the good news, that God justifies the ungodly. We saw Romans chapter 4, verse 4, God doesn't save by giving us a paycheck on how good we do, because, friends, we don't do as good as we think we do. But he gives a contrast in verse 5. Look at, look at this again. And so the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Not to the one who works, but to the one who believes that person is counted as righteous. And specifically notice what he must believe, that God justifies the ungodly. That should sound a bit scandalous to us on its face. Friends, that God, the judge, forgives guilty criminals. He commits death sentences. He justifies, calls righteous those who are ungodly and unrighteous. How does that work? It truly is the glory of the gospel. How can Romans 4 5 be true and Proverbs 17 15 be true? Look at Proverbs 17 15 with me. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. How can a righteous and holy God forgive ungodly sinners without compromising his righteousness and without excusing their wickedness? How can God do it? Oh, friends, and that is what the good news is all about. Right on the heels of giving an indictment against all humanity and the verdict that we are all sinners, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 3. And it's long, but friends, it's good. He says this, But now the righteousness of God, or the righteousness from God, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, Jesus, might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the good news. God justifies the ungodly through a man named Jesus Christ. He was the one foretold by the law and the prophets who would come to save sinners. And he says he saves Jew and Gentile. That means anyone who would believe. He brings righteousness to us through his perfect life, through his blood, his death on the cross. He provides propitiation. That's just a big word for a payment of sin's wrath. He has purchased redemption available full and free by grace alone, through faith alone, in his finished work alone. Through his resurrection, his substitution on the cross and his victorious resurrection, Jesus is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. In other words, he is just because he punishes our sin in Jesus because Jesus is dying in our place. And through Jesus, he's able to justify and save us from our sins. This is the good news that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has come according to the promise He has lived a fully sinless life. He has died on the cross, not just for you, but instead of you. He's risen again from the dead on the third day, and through his life and work, he has purchased complete and total forgiveness of sin. That is the good news. And at the cross, a second imputation takes place. You know, I told you how Adam's sin is sort of imputed to us. Friends, when we believe in Jesus, our sin is then imputed to Jesus. That when he dies, he died for our sins. And for those who believe, there's even a third imputation that takes place, that through faith, God's righteousness is imputed to us. That's what happened to Abraham, and it's true for us that Abraham was counted righteous, and that this was a righteousness from God. Through faith, we're counted righteous, not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes through Jesus by faith. We are credited with the righteousness of God. A great exchange occurred at the cross. Our sin was placed on Jesus, and his perfect life was given to all who would believe. Friends, see the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see it? Jesus, who knew no sin, was treated as if he was a sinner by dying on the cross and by bearing our punishment there so that in Jesus we might receive, be credited, be called the righteousness of God. Now, that word imputation probably is not a word we use every day, but it comes from the word of accounting. In other words, Adam sinned and all received sort of a penalty and sin had left their spiritual bank account in the red. We were overdrawn, friends, to the infinite degree because of Adam's actions. We were left overdrawn, and we were left unable to pay our debts. And the good news is that Jesus came, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he paid what we owed, paid it off full and free, bore the punishment for our spiritually negative accounts. He paid the debt, but friends, he did so much more. 
Because not simply did he bring us from negative to zero and leave us there, but no, Jesus' perfect bank account of righteousness is then credited to your accounts. We don't simply go again from negative to zero, from sin to forgiven. We go from negative to infinitely in the positive. From sin to righteousness, we are now by God considered and called righteous because we're united to a righteous Savior. He now calls us his child. Friends, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another to be adopted and brought home and given a place at the table and a bed to sleep in. And friends, that's what God does for us. And then when we believe, God begins the process of making us positionally, we're positionally righteous, righteous to have us work that out in our own life, to begin to live by what he calls us. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Paul's hope was this, Philippians 3, 9, to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See the good news. Jesus has done everything you need to be made right before God. You don't got to add toward it. We don't come to church in order to check off a list to make God more happy with us. We don't go and get baptized to think that there's something special in the water that washes it away. We don't simply repeat this guy's prayer as if we can just summon up something and we just go through the motions. No, friends, your only hope of righteousness and salvation and forgiveness is Jesus Christ because only he could live a sinless life, die in your place, and rise again on the third day. And through him, we are counted righteous, full, and free. We've seen the bad news, right? God's holy, we're sinners, and that means we're in trouble. We've seen the good news that Jesus Christ has come and lived a sinless life in our place. He's died on the cross. He's risen again on the third day to bring justification and righteousness and life. But there's still a third piece of news we got to hear, and we got to hear it carefully. We got to hear the best news that we are justified by faith alone. I think this is so important that we emphasize this in our world today because there's so many folks who think they're right with God because they do things other people right with God do. They confuse a relationship with God for going through the motions. Because forgiveness doesn't come through seeking to keep the law or through obedience to a religious ceremony or even based on your heritage. But forgiveness of sin comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And God never gives partial forgiveness. We aren't simply brought to a neutral position. We're adopted in as sons and daughters. He says, not to the one who works, but to the one who simply believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. And Paul wants us to see sort of what's the, what this looks like by turning from Abraham to a guy named David. And he says this in verse 6. He offers David as an example. 
just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Then he quotes Psalm 32, which we read at the start of our service this morning. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We are declared righteous apart from works, blessed in relationship with God, our lawless deeds forgiven, our sins covered, and our sins no longer counted against us. That last point is so incredible, because have you ever had somebody who said they forgive you, but they never let you forget that they forgave you of that? Friends, God ain't that way. He does not count our sins against us. They're no longer on the account sheet of our life. They've been blotted out, completely covered, forgiven, gone, separated from us. And this is the glorious gospel message that all of this is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And what a message we need to hear. And it's a message we need to share with everyone we know. Friends, who around you needs to hear the bad news, the good news, and the best news? And I hope this serves you to help to share that with others. So let me personally challenge you this week to try to share this with someone. You don't have to get everything that I shared, but I hope this would be a simple outline for you to be able to share the good news with someone this week. But friends, again, the gospel isn't just for the lost. It isn't just for those out there. Friends, we need to be reminded of this glorious news. Specifically, let me speak to two kinds of people before we close this morning. Let me speak to those Abrahams in the room. There are many here who may have a great appearance of righteousness. You've done these great things. You've given this good stuff. You are what they they would call in this community, he's just a good old boy. He's a staple. He's been here. You've done these things. People in the world think well of you. But let me call you and encourage you and and warn you, don't cling to your own works or your own heritage because, friends, you need perfect righteousness before the presence of God. Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect. And I know I'm in a lot of trouble if I've got Jesus as the standard. Just go home and consider the Ten Commandments. We worked our way through those uh, a few months ago, but friends, none of us can perfectly keep those in thought, word, or deed. Have we ever had anything in our life more important to us than God? Have we ever made something in our life into God and sort of gave it our hope and our worship and our attention? Have we ever misused the name of God? Have we ever struggled to rest Have we ever dishonored our father and our mother? Have we ever in our hearts desired for someone who was not our spouse in an inappropriate way or even in an emotional way? Have we ever sought to to hate someone? Jesus says if you hate them, it's like you've committed murder already in your hearts. Have you ever lied, stolen anything? Have you ever coveted something that wasn't your own? That's the standard by which God will judge us. And friends, we are all in trouble. Even Abraham could not be justified by the law, and neither can you. 
So the Bible would warn about having an appearance of righteousness, but denying the power thereof. He would warn about trying to cling to sort of an outward cultural standard of morality and thinking that's enough. Rather, what you need is to go through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. So I would call you today, if you do not know God, to cry out to him to save you, to say I'm setting aside my appearance of righteousness and I need true righteousness from heaven, not righteousness from my neighbors or from the world. I'm warning the Abrahams to set aside their righteousness and to receive the righteousness of Jesus. Let me speak a brief word to the Davids. See, David is remembered as a man after God's own heart, but he's also remembered for blowing it big time. He blew it big time with Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband having him murdered. He blew it in a massive way. And friends, I'm sure there's somebody here today who feels like they've blown it too big. God could never forgive you. God could never rescue you. But let David be a source of your hope. He is the same man who wrote the words, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And he was talking about himself. Friends, God can forgive you. You are not too far gone. Jesus did not send his son into this world for righteous people, but for sinners. And all of us have blown it. And all of us must come today in repentance and faith to the one who's lived a sinless life, died on the cross in our place for our sins and risen again so that we could have new and everlasting life. And he says, come to me all who weary and heavy laden. Stop striving and start resting in his promise. In these next few moments, we're gonna have a time to respond we're going to have a time, maybe today, you need to come to Jesus for the first time. I'll be down front. You can pray with me. You can also catch me at the door. But for others, we may just need to be reminded of what life is all about. The gospel is meant to reorient our eternity so that our life can be set right. So today, whatever you need to do, an invitation is there to respond to God's word, to set aside our righteousness, and to receive Jesus as our hope and our stay. Let's stand and let's pray together. Jesus, we have heard today the bad news, that we are sinners before a holy God and left to ourselves. We have no hope of salvation and hope and life, that because of our father Adam, Lord, we're all in trouble, both by nature and by choice. Well, Lord, I'm thankful that you sent Jesus into the world as the second Adam to live a sinless life, to die in our place, and to offer and to rise again from the dead, and to offer us perfect righteousness, a perfect standing before you that I didn't achieve, but that you achieved in my place. And so, Lord, I ask that you would have those who do not know you today come to know you. Spirit, awaken them to their sin and help them to know that you are a God who justifies the ungodly through faith. 
not through striving and through works and through long systems that never end. And Lord, help to remind us that we have a good news worth sharing, worth believing, and worth living out. And may we respond today in a way that would please you. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.